Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. seems so good, but never better than we listen to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling, a classic wrestling podcast where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a wicked good and raw bone podcast. I invite all of you to join our Facebook group. It's just called Stick to Wrestling. We have all kinds of cool conversations, results, Photos of old wrestling, uh, photos of old wrestling pictures, and they let me have a podcast. But yeah, that's what we have. <laughs> um, you are invited. Also, follow me on Twitter. It strokes my ego when people follow me when I get new followers. Uh, just search John McAdam and follow the guy who has the stick to wrestling avatar as his, uh, as his whatever it is, <laughs> the, the thing there. I am so not together right now, and I don't know why. I've had all kinds of time to get ready for this. Quick note before we get started, we are in the middle of a thunderstorm where I'm at, where we're recording. So if you hear rain smacking around the background, that's what it is. If you hear boom, it's thunder. Uh, I hope my uh, my Wi-Fi doesn't get wonky. But with that, another reason to join the Facebook group is we took questions for from the group for this show. Very specific, because my guest and I... Both started ro- watching wrestling right around the same time, 1976. And we're going to talk about that year, uh, guided through your questions. Uh, there was a tag team in 1976, Dennis Condry and Phil Hickerson, who were a great team, calling themselves the Bicentennial Kings. We are the other Bicentennial Kings, myself and my guest, Steve Generelli. Steve, thanks for coming back. Hey, John, it's great to be back after a lengthy absence, as they like to say on WWF TV 100 years ago. And it's great to be back with our Stick to Wrestling Nation and all of their questions. Steve, if, if you wanted the hair to stick up on my arms, all Vince McMahon would have to say is, and returning after a lengthy absence, I would just be like, oh! Who is it? Who is it? Or, you know, making his WWF debut. I mean, talk about like your little kid high. That was great for me. No, those were the days, and just uh, it was—it's such a simple time. I mean, it was just one hour of wrestling a week, and not too many matches in that hour, and a handful of interviews, and we were happy as clams. You know, one thing we were discussing on the Facebook group is I we put up I put up results from an AWA show and someone said, Wow, you know, there are other places where people would complain about, you know, there were three like DQ count out, draw, whatever finishes. And people, you know, uh, there are some people who complain about that. I would go to a WWF show in 81, 82, whenever, and there would be, you know, I would list results. You know, you'd have a DQ, count out, whatever. We didn't care. There was not a, a, a whisper of complaint in the car or the van or whatever on the way home about, oh, no, there were not a, a lot of clean finishes. As you said, it was a simpler time. Now, now that leads me to ask you this question, because I, I don't know if you've ever answered this on the show before. I don't, I don't think we've ever had this conversation before. Do you remember the first live show you attended? And if so, what do you remember about it? 
Well, I have discussed this, but it has been a little a little while. The first show I saw, I believe, was December 10th, 1976 in North Attleboro, Massachusetts. The main event was kind of a dream match for me, and everyone get ready to laugh. It was the Masked Executioners versus Chief J. Strongbow and Billy White Wolf. And A, I was very surprised, somehow, I was very surprised that Captain Lou Albano did not make the pilgrimage to North Attleboro, Massachusetts. And number two on the undercard of that show was Bruiser Brody against no less than Jose Gonzalez. Wow. I, I do remember you mentioning that that match, not the uh, main event match, but that, that was really, uh, I mean, other than Bruno's biggest feuds that year, that Indi- the Indians against the Executioners was a really hot feud for the WWF. It really was, and it, it kind of you know introduced me to what the WWF was going to be about when it came to tag teams, because they really dragged that feud out. I mean, it started in the spring, and here we are in December, and it's still going on, and the Executioners never even lost the tag team titles. They had them uh, stripped away when they were shenanigans, and then they have this tournament in like late 76, and it was like, I'm, I'm like, 13 years old. I'm in sixth grade, so I'm 12 years old. Never mind. And they're talking about they have a jobber team wrestling the executioners in this tournament. And Vince McMahon is like, oh, and uh, this team is a a late entry into the tournament. I'm like, do these people know how tournaments work? Come on. (laughs) I'll I'll never forget that because that was the same time where Monsoon came out, you know, representing the WWF officials. And he said, uh, Oh, you know, in the semifinals, the team of uh, Bruiser and the Sheik lost to, and you know, he was he was just you know mentioning these guys from other promotions that weren't even in the Worldwide Wrestling Federation. So those were exciting times. You know, I just watched a. Oh, we're, <laughs> by the time we take our first question, the hour will be up. But, um, <laughs> I was watching Monsoon doing commentary from '85. This was this was just today, and he's talking about like how the winner gets the entire share of the 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 purse money, and the loser doesn't get any of it. And if it's a draw, they get fifty fifty. I'm like, what is this guy yammering about? For God's sake! <laughs> yeah, and and people go on about he was the uh, greatest thing of their childhood. Uh, give me a break. Oh, I I I don't want to say I never liked Monsoon. I'm sure I liked him when I when I was way younger. But when he was on primetime wrestling or whatever, I I could not stand the guy. And I guess you know that was me being in my late teens, early twenties, versus me being you know ten or eleven. Well, I, I think at least when when Jesse showed up and when Mon, when. Uh, Poppy the Brain showed up. They they actually made him palatable. Without those two guys, he would have been the pits. Uh, I, I thought he was great with Jesse. I, he was fine with Heenan when they were actually doing matches, but I, I did not like uh, Gorilla Monsoon on the primetime wrestling set. He was like your grumpy old uncle. Oh, I'll, I'll kick you out of here. Huh? <laughs> I, I I actually liked him in that. I I didn't really care for him much, like doing challenge or those. But you know, that's just my personal preference. But hey, we've got a whole bunch of questions we better get to. Well, I I want to know your first wrestling card, and I'm going to guess it was in Binghamton, and I'm going to guess it was 1981. Uh, well, those are good guesses. It was Binghamton in 1977. So um, the first card was. I mean, it was just interesting going into the building because I'd gone there for, we'd seen minor league hockey for, you know, 
to, you know, probably I probably went to like you know forty games every year, and you're oh, used wow. to the, ho- the the hockey setup, and you're seeing. And this was the NAHL. This was the league with with Goldie Goldthorpe and tons of fighting. It was kind of like the league that uh, Slapshot was based on, and uh, so you're used to hockey. But when I walked in that building and I bought my souvenirs and which were just the programs and black and white eight by tens, and then I walked through the center to just look at the ring. I mean, I, I was just in awe, just looking at the ring in the center of this building. And I think the first show only probably drew like, and this is the first WWF show in that town in many a year. I think it probably drew like 1,400 fans. You know, they would do a lot better in the years to come. But the main event was a double main event of Strongbow against Von Raschke and, uh, Stasiak against Putski, or maybe the reverse of those two. And it was okay. Uh, I mean, just to see the prelims. I mean, I think the first match may have been like Don Serrano against Steve King or something of that effect. You know, you, you know full well from being at the cards. You know how full well those matches were terrible, those prelim matches. But... But but we you know the cards that followed after that we saw Billy Graham against uh, Strongbow a few times and those were atrocious matches like three to four minutes tops and Strongbow completely dominating but hey I got I got the memory of seeing Billy Graham in his almost his prime. I did not get to see Superstar Billy Graham in his prime. I got to see Kung Fu Superstar Billy Graham, but that was <laughs> it. And he he defended against Strongbow in North Attleboro. The Jack Witchie Sports Arena was like a, literally a one mile walk from where I lived. I I actually checked on I don't know the internet, whatever website tells you this, and it says it was one point one miles. Well, you were you were a future valedictorian, and you had your uh, you know highest standards you had to follow. So I understand completely. Ah, there you go. All right, we are going to talk about 1986. We're not lying to you this time. <laughs> we took a question. We took two similar questions. One is from Mark Mark Hertwick. If Bruno is unable, I like the way Bruno like has one name, and we totally know who we're talking about. Is <laughs> is unable to return from his broken neck. Uh, for the showdown at Shea in 1976, who from the WWF are you booking for the main event uh, to pair with the Ali Inoki closed circuit fight from Japan? And number two, if Bruno does not come back from the broken neck, does the WWF survive? Steve, what are your thoughts on this? Well, uh, for Mark's question, I would say um, my answer is similar to the, you know, what would happen if Andre doesn't show up for WrestleMania three? No, that's not going to happen. Andre is going to show up for WrestleMania three, right. and and Bruno is going to show up for this event too. Uh, he meant too much. Uh, the Anoki thing was a complete flop. Uh, it would have been a huge bomb in New York without this Bruno match. So it had to happen. Um, as to the similar question, would the WWF have died if Bruno didn't come back? No, I don't think so. It would have. It wouldn't have been the best thing. Um, I mean, he definitely needed a send off of some sort. He couldn't just be, uh, you know, uh, end of career, end of everything. Uh, uh, they would have uh, somehow found a way to get a replacement, like a, even a Billy Graham uh, heel replacement, and eventually a Backlund. But, but they, I don't see any world where Bruno doesn't have the proper send off or proper transition into uh, the next phase of his career. Well, I, I looked at it this way, okay? The, the Andre thing, I, I get the similarity, but Bruno 
legitimately broke his neck or or fractured his neck. Uh, I think it was April 26, 1976. And Steve, have you ever seen the footage of that? I actually watched that match on HBO Live, um, the Bruno Hansen match. And um, oh wow, I was such a naive young fan. I ran down the stairs and put on the Bill Mazur and the New York uh, Sports on the TV, thinking that they were talking about Bruno's broken neck, but they never mentioned it. Go figure. Oh yeah, really? Well, I mean, it, it, <laughs> if you have, I saw it when right after Bruno died, they put out a special on what was then WWE Network, and they showed it. I think they showed it for the first time. Stan, Han- I, I, you wonder how Bruno didn't get killed. I mean, Stan dropped him right on the top of his head like a spike. It was insane. So I took the question as what if Bruno really, you know, this happens April 26th. What if he really, truly can't get in the ring on, uh, you know, uh, June 26th? I think it was. What if he really, truly can't walk? What I would have done was I would have said, okay, we're having a tournament for the WWF Championship, a four-man tournament so that everyone in the promotion doesn't have to do a job. I would have done Superstar Billy Graham, Stan Hansen, Ivan Putski. I would have brought back Pedro Morales if there was any other way, otherwise Bobo Brazil. And it, I would have had Superstar Billy Graham win the tournament, so 1977 arrives a year early. So then when Bruno is finally ready to come back, a, you've got the Revenge versus Stan Hansen matches. Those are going to draw. And then B, you've got the, hey, I'm going after the championship. I never lost storyline. So that that's how <laughs> I took the question. Like, what if Bruno really couldn't come back after two months? I, I really like your answer. That's outstanding. That that would have been a huge box office with those two attractions. Uh, awesome. Awesome answer, John. Well, thank you very much. And. If the if Bruno doesn't come back, does the WWF survive? I know Bruno has claimed, and I believe him, that Vince Senior told him, you know, if you don't wrestle on June 26th, I'm going to go out of business. Uh, so that's what kind of brought Bruno into the ring. You know, whether or not that's true, I doubt it because here's why: you have the WWF at the time, which had a monopoly on New York, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, uh, all of the cities in the Northeast, and all places in between. You know, p- places like Binghamton, places like Nashville, New Hampshire, that mm-hmm. you know draws for wrestling. So even, and I know Vince Senior lost big money on the Ali and Noki thing. But, you know, we we wouldn't have just tuned in to Channel 9 or Channel 56 uh, when it's wrestling time and we see they're running an old movie or something like that. The WWF would have survived. You know, worst case scenario, someone buys the promotion from Vince Sr. More likely scenario, if he really takes a hit on this you know you bring in an investor you bring in uh, outside money and you have the person buy either buy a piece of the promotion or you use the promotion as collateral on a loan there's no way the wwf goes under like i said i know it's been discussed but if you take a step back and you look at it that ain't happening no, I, I agree completely. They had, they had, um, despite uh, McMahon, the senior liking to go to the racetrack and all that stuff. Uh, they had, they had money That's in the bank. Right. They, they, they weren't hurting, you know. They, they had money in the bank, but, but uh, anyhow, um, I do have another question here, and this one is from John Ware. He asks, kind of 1976. 
was Ali a fan before he got involved in wrestling, or was it strictly personal promotion for him? What do you think, Steve? I've heard I've heard that he was a Blassie fan uh, growing up, and uh, and whether it was his memory going bad or the Parkinson's or whatever, I think years later that may have changed to uh, Gorgeous George was his influence. It may have been Blassie, but um, you know, obviously from what he did in wrestling, you know, the stuff. Uh, setting up this uh, thing with monsoon uh, you could tell he was enjoying it he, you know he let himself go for the airplane spin he kind of looked uh, like a dummy getting slammed by monsoon and I, I think he was really enjoying his time in wrestling i agree I, I i've always heard i haven't read his autobiography which is kind of a mistake on my part but i've always heard he was a big fan that he loved gorgeous george that he borrowed a lot of his personal style from you know, wrestling in general, I mean, you can tell he was influenced by it. So I, I believe he grew up a fan. And, you know, wrestling, even before Jarrett in Louisville, I mean, wrestling was big in Louisville. So, you know, mm-hmm. I, Dick, I think Dick, Dick the Bruiser ran it back in the day. Yeah, yeah, and he uh, and and he did lots of different pr- promotions in wrestling over the years. He maybe did WrestleMania one. He did the um, didn't he do something in I think Louisiana with a promotion there, and uh, and of course WCW years later he did something with them. So he was really um, happy to get involved with wrestling. I want to say it was eighty uh, seventy three or seventy four when he was on Wide World of Sports and he did a match with Buddy Wolf and you know of course Howard Cosell has to ruin it ah oh, this is a farce ah you know but I mean you you're right he was so involved in it that you think he had to want to be especially you know I mean he's the most famous person in the world and he's he's farting around with Buddy Wolf on Wide World of Sports. Yeah, yeah, and, and that actually was tied in with this promotion for the Ali thing. I guess uh, you know Vince Vince was there too, and they thought that this was going to catch on. You know, and I give them credit; they were thinking outside the box. They thought this mix, mixed martial arts thing would catch on, but it just wasn't meant to be. All right, we have two more similar questions about the uh, Ali Enoki fight. One is from Brian Garuntho. I remember watching the Ali Monsoon get together on TV, but it did not receive. But did it receive any mainstream media attention? That was number one. And let me answer that. It did not. It got, if I recall correctly, both that both his involvement uh, on WWF TV. And his match against Inoki got tiny little features in Sports Illustrated, like not not even a feature, just like a, a quarter of a page, maybe not even. I mean, Steve, do you remember anything like mainstream coming out of this? I, I totally don't remember anything in the sporting news. I don't remember anything like, you know, watching sports on the news, whatever. No, I, I really don't either. I think that this was just a little bit before the time where you had TV shows like uh, PM Magazine and those popular type of shows where, uh, and of course, ESPN was many, many years away. So the kind of the Sports Center moment was uh, just a gleam in uh, Bill Simmons' eye, I guess. Okay, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I remember it getting virtually no coverage. And Brian also mentions he is still amazed that Ali let himself get handled like that. And to this, as soon as I figured out what was going on in wrestling, I thought the same thing. I mean, for those who haven't seen it, Gorilla Monsoon is at ringside. Gorilla Monsoon, Muhammad Ali is at ringside. 
Gorilla Monsoon is about to wrestle Baron Mikkel Sakluna. Ali gets in the ring and Gorilla Monsoon ragdolls the guy. He just like drops him and then he picks him up and puts him in an airplane spin and Ali is helpless. And then Monsoon goes out and to be interviewed by Vince McMahon and he's gloating about it. I could have done anything I wanted with that guy. I'm just to this day, I'm shocked Ali did that. I mean, he made himself look so bad. <laughs> it, it was it was a hilarious moment. I mean, if you're just watching it, or you know, I could just imagine somebody that had no idea what wrestling was, and they just landed on this channel and they see Ali in the ring getting tossed around by this 400 pound gorilla monsoon. It, it, it was just it was just you know, it, it, had it been in that era of uh, Sports Center, it would have been all over the era of social media that we're living in now. It would have been on every website, on every every newspaper, everything. Yeah, that, that great uh, shoot move, the airplane spin. Um, and let me see. And David Ferguson asks, any thoughts on Ali versus Inoki? Steve, have you seen? Have you ever seen the match? I've seen clips of it over the years. I, I, I guess I never really wanted to make myself suffer so much to, to really endure the entire match. But, I mean, my idea of their match together is kind of akin to – Hey, I, I run Paramount Pictures. Let's have a movie with uh, Marlon Brando. Let's let's also get Jack Nicholson. But uh, we have no script, but these guys are going to show up on Saturday, and we're going to start filming, and we'll see what happens. And I bet you in six months we'll have the best movie you'll ever see. I mean, it doesn't work like that. You have to have something. You have to have a script to make a movie. You have to have a scenario to make a wrestling match, or in this case, a mixed martial arts match. To have them say, hey, we're going to be shooters. I'm going to be on my back the whole time. You're going to be trying to punch me, but I'm never going to be within your airspace. I mean, it's just made for the most asinine fight of all time. Okay, a little background. I got the fight. Uh, was one of the first things I got when I started uh, trading tapes in 1987. And wow. I saw it. I didn't know what to expect. And like a half an hour into it, I'm like, I, you know, I got through it. But I was like, I can't stand this. This is so boring. This is awful. <laughs> and then I watched it again, maybe 20, over 20 years ago after UFC became a thing. And mm-hmm. I grew to appreciate it because really, yeah, Steve, they, they did have a script. The script was mm-hmm. going to be that Ali, uh, excuse me, Inoki was busted open and um, Ali was going to be begging the, the ref, hey, stop the match. This guy's head is hamburger. And as he was doing that, Inoki was going to give him an Inzagiri kick, knocking him out of the ring and getting him counted out. Now, if Ali did what he did with Monsoon, I don't see the problem with this, right? But Mm -hmm. as the match got closer, Ali didn't want to do a job. No one wanted to cancel this because Inoki had a lot of money invested in this as well. So they agreed to those rules and they went by those rules. And as something, you know, obviously Inoki is not going to sit there and trade punches with Muhammad Ali, for God's sake. So I thought what he did was a really good strategy. Now, is it an hour that I would recommend any of my, any of our (laughs) listeners to invest in this? I would not, but I didn't think it was the worst thing in the world. I, I now I got what Inoki was doing and this is going to sound like a strange thing to say. I think Inoki absolutely should have been, uh, absolutely should have won the the match on a decision. 
Well, I do remember hearing uh, that that uh, when they were discussing how the match was going to go and they were trying to book an ending to the match and that scenario that you described with the Enziguri kick and the, the fact that uh, well, I think Inoki was going to do the major blade job. I think when the boxing people heard about the blading and they just you know, you know, lifted their hands up in the air and said, we want no part of this. They just felt that was so uh, you know beneath them. Uh, they couldn't do business with that. But but I, I really, really? Uh, enjoy hearing. Yeah, I really enjoy hearing your feedback, though, that you uh, watched the match and did enjoy it somewhat. That's very interesting. I mean, you think of all the crazy sleazy stuff that went on in the 1970s boxing industry, and you know, some wrestler cutting his head is going to be all right. Now that's where I'm drawing the line. I don't know about that. Yeah. Steve. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll have to uh, we'll have to leave that to the history books. Who knows? Yeah, I actually bought the Ali versus Anoki book uh, probably about two years ago, and I, I am one of those people who buys books and never reads them, but I, I will get around to it someday. Probably not. I'm lying. But anyway, Steve, <laughs> it is your turn to pick a question. All right. We have Les Tekix, who is asking us, what was any promotion's biggest missed opportunity in 1976? And he asked us, was, could it be Bruno versus Andre? I mean, my own take on it is you can't do Bruno versus Andre. You cannot do it. It, I mean, it makes no sense. Andre can't do a job and Bruno can't do a job. So you just don't make that match. Um, I'm not even sure it would be something that the fans would want to see, to be honest with you. I think the only one that was ever interested in that was Bruno. He seemed to have a fascination with that match. Uh, But after the uh, kind of failure... Somewhat, yeah, he, he was interested in it, but after the failure of the uh, Bruno Morales match, um, Senior really never wanted to do another scientific match like that again. And uh, just, you know, it just, um, it, it was good that they didn't, because like you said, uh, if Bruno loses, it, it devalues him. If Andre loses, it devalues him. And to have a screw job ending or a draw wasn't the way they did things in New York, as far as usually they like to have a definitive winner in an important match with the exception of that Morales-Bruno match. so I would think that Bruno, if, if anything, would have learned his lesson from the Pedro Morales versus Bruno <laughs> Sammartino match. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with that. It, I, again, I don't think there could have been any winner in that match. What, what do you think, though, as far as maybe from another promotion, was there a missed opportunity for maybe a different type of a dream match in another city? I I don't know about a match. I would say the biggest missed opportunity, and I will preface this by saying I know this is not how the NWA did business, and they did fine more or less in 1976 doing what they did, but Dusty Rhodes was on fire. And I don't think making him the NWA champion would have been the worst thing in the world. Um, I, I think, you know, he would have been a draw anywhere he went. You could have had it. It could have been relatively short term, like a 12, 18 month run. But, you know, all you have to do is do what the WWF did with Hogan, do what the WWF was doing with Bruno San Martino. Just feed him a heel every time he comes in. No, that, that's that's a great idea, and I just wonder why couldn't the NWA promoters have have tried to do a Dusty on top somewhere for some length of time? I mean, why did it always have to be the formula of 
you know, uh, bad, bad guy champ with the chase and, and the bad guy putting over the uh, local guy for 55 minutes and then the traditional ending. I don't know why they had to keep sticking with that formula. Well, I mean, the one reason and, you know, there are other reasons that may have overcome this. But when the NWA champion went to Dallas, uh, Fritz von Erich wanted the NWA champion making him look good. He, di- he didn't want to set up uh, heel of the month or heel of the two or three months, whatever. I think Eddie Graham liked the NWA champion coming in and going up against Dusty Rhodes. Mr. Wrestling 2 was the top guy in Georgia. So, mm-hmm. you know, you want to have Terry Funk or whoever against Mr. Wrestling 2. So I think that makes sense. But what may, you know, have been bigger than that is, hey, Dusty Dusty was red hot in 76. And he made money everywhere, everywhere he went. So like I said, what mm-hmm. they what they did worked. So I'm not going to complain too much. Sure. And you right. have a question for me now about the great 76. Yeah, I, I do. And I'll, I'll actually answer it first. I'll give you a couple of seconds or whatever to think about what your answer might be. Last week's guest, Brad Breitzman, asked... How was Terry Funk booked as NWA champion? Was he a total tweener or how was he used? Now, in 76, I didn't know this, but as time went on and I started buying uh, back issues of the wrestling magazines, you know, learning a little bit about history, Terry Funk really was the first 100% heel NWA champion, of course, excluding when he's defending the title in Amarillo or, or, or that territory. Gene Kaniski leaned toward the heel side, but not like as much as Terry Funk did. It was a complete departure from the Jack Briscoe, uh, who was a babyface, but sometimes he'd get a little bit heelish in his matches. Dory Funk Jr., same thing. Luthez, same thing. So we're going way back here. And Terry was the the first guy who he was a a hundred percent heel. Like I said, everywhere he went, there was no subtlety to it. And that's how he was booked. Do you have any, any thoughts on that, Steve? Well, I I do know that, you know, he was champion for, I think about 14 months. And, and from what I've been told uh, compared to the prior NWA champions who had all been more like traditional wrestlers, he was just a, you know, complete Terry Funk. He was the complete showman and he would do his Terry Funk stuff in the matches. You know, he would have crazy brawls. He would have crazy bumps. He would do insane things in the ring. And uh, I think some fans that were, you know, the insider fans or observer type fans, they might have felt it was a little bit too extreme or a little bit too over the top. But uh, he definitely was a very untraditional NWA champion compared to the Pat O'Connors and the Kaniskis and Dory and Briscoe, especially. He he was. And um, I mean, Terry Funk is one of my favorite wrestlers of all time. Uh, You do listen to this podcast. You know that. Terry Funk was considered an unsuccessful NWA champion compared to the previous ones. And I think, you know, it might have been less, oh, Terry Funk isn't a draw. I think we've seen that Terry Funk's a draw and maybe more the way he was constantly used. He They used him every promotion the way Ric Flair was used in Dallas. Like, clearly... Carrie Von Eric is better than this guy, but well, the the rules are the rules, and he gets to keep the championship. I, I mean, to me, that's why Terry didn't draw, not because Terry Funk couldn't draw. 
Oh, no, he, he was just outstanding as he always is in the ring. And, and just like he was in the WWF about 10 years later, just the travel just got to him. I mean, it was an insane uh, travel. I mean, I looked up his year and he would go to, you know, a specific territory, wrestle like four or five different guys. You know, with somebody really popular like Dusty, if he was in Florida, he'd wrestle Dusty maybe two or three times. But he really spread it out. He would wrestle, you know, three or four different challengers during these one week stays and promotions. And, you know, it just was what it was. I mean, he, he got burned out from working so many dates. And uh, by the time that Harley beat him in Toronto, uh, beginning of 77, he was exhausted. He was, he was grateful to give up the belt. No. And, and so many guys wanted that uh, championship and, you know, Briscoe handed it back to them. He'd had enough. And then Terry, after only like 14 months, decided that he'd had enough. And which is a little bit of a surprise to me because if anyone knew who, what they were getting into, it was Terry Funk, uh, you know, because his brother had just been NWA champion. But I mean, it wasn't the lifestyle for him and, and good for him. He got out of it. Yeah, and, and now looking back on it, I mean, I think a lot of uh, the younger fans that only know Terry from ECW, uh, they they just don't realize this, the what he did in the 70s and what he meant to the 70s. He was such an important wrestler in the 1970s. And he was even a bigger star over in Japan. He was like a god in Japan, and I think he just retired once too many times there. <laughs> yeah, definitely. He was really beloved over there. Now, I owe you a question here. I'm going to look for the, the right one. All right. You know what? While you're doing that, I just want to throw in a quick thing. I remember when Terry Funk showed up in the WWF, I want to say summer of 1985. I was just like, wow, they're blowing the dust off Terry Funk. How old is this guy? And no, immediately, like the first thing he does is he cans his gear to Mel Phillips and Mel Phillips, he's old, his arms are full. So he puts on Terry Funk's cowboy hat and Terry Funk beats the crap out of him. And I was like, oh, my God, I love this guy. Yeah, it's it's funny. Uh, here's a here's a ridiculous wrestling trivia. Terry's first opponent in that match was Aldo Marino, and uh, and at, Aldo Marino would actually be Randy Savage's first opponent in the WWF right around the same time. So, uh, and I think he was later known as Ricky Santana, but uh, he was a good good job guy. But yeah, Terry Funk was awesome. He he was just great in everything he did. You know, getting way off the tracks. I remember uh, JCP had Aldo Marino, not Aldo Marino, Ricky Santana in, in 1988. And I was like, why uh -huh. are they not pushing this guy? Are they unaware that the United States has a Hispanic population? Yeah, yeah. He was a good worker, definitely. And, and, and hey, I found a question that might be appropriate after the last one we just went over. All this right. one is from Sonny Martinez. Sonny is asking, what was the perception of Harley Race in 1976? By that point, he'd only had the NWA World's Championship for less than two months, and that was years before that. Was he viewed as a failure, or was it known that his best years were about to come? Well, I am actually that, – that was my next question that I was going to pick, and I'm actually glad Sonny asked that because I don't even think Sonny's dad was born by 1976. <laughs> never, never mind Sonny, but – um. I saw him as, hey, he had the the credit of being a former NWA champion. Yeah, it was kind of a, a short run. It was, it was it was a short run by by the standards of the time, but he won it, which to me means he could win it again. So 
you know, back then, once you had that status as former NWA champion, you know, that's, that's not something that's going away. And they didn't have, you know, Tommy Rich runs back then either. And when Terry Funk, you know, kind of merging the two conversations, when they put the title on Terry Funk, it was a, I mean, Terry barely got the nod over Harley Race. I remember having a conversation with Harry White and a couple other people about this like 30 years ago. You know, it really could have gone either way. And when Terry, 14 months later, said, I've had enough of this, there wasn't even a conversation. Harley Race was getting the championship, and he held it for over four years with a couple of quickies thrown in. He, uh, I mean, Harley's another guy. His career is very comparable to uh, Terry Funk. Just the incredible body of work and longevity. But I, as far as somebody that you're picking as the face of the NWA, I always kind of think like he is a guy that is in the background, like somebody that, hey, uh, if we don't have anybody better, let's go with Harley. <laughs> and it just seems like, to me at least, and maybe I'm completely wrong, you know, the promoters of the NWA were looking for somebody a little more splashy the way Flair would end up being, or if Kerry had a, you know, a prime that he could have really sunk his teeth into. This is Harley, I mean, a great worker in the ring, but he didn't have that personality, or I guess like the larger-than-life personality of a dusty Riff Flair. You know, he great worker, no doubt about that, but uh, – and, and he had that real serious look. Maybe that was part of what sold him on the promoters. You know, you could really believe that this guy was a champion and tough as nails, but he wasn't flashy like, say, Flair or Dusty was. Definitely not. I mean, as far as look and personality, I mean, Harley was, you know, he was dry paint. What can I tell you? I mean, <laughs> like you said, great worker. And here's the thing, too. When Race won the title in 77, by the time he lost it, 1981, the wrestling business had really changed. I mean, he was kind of bland for 77, but by the time 81 rolled rolled around, I mean, I you know at the time I was like, what is this? You know, you're putting the, the most you know dull guy you could have out there you might as well call him bob johnson or something like that and you know the, like i said the wrestling business had changed and i thought the nwa took it really took its sweet time changing along with it and i just want to throw this in too i get that harley was reliable unless he was wrestling for bill uh, paul bosch i get that you know he had great matches that everyone liked him that he was legit but i thought they kept the title on him way too long yeah, I, I agree completely. When when the um, 1980, like you say, 80, 81, 82, and he's still really heavily in the championship mix, and he he just started to look quite older than than his real age was. I guess all the all the long nights driving and the you know the 24 packs of beer and stuff really was catching up to him. But uh, but yeah, like you know, as Vince showed later on, I mean, when you have guys that look like Orndorff and Hogan and you know, Tommy Rich, I mean, I mean, he, he didn't have a great body, but I mean, the, the, the youthful face and everything, uh, the, the, you know, that appealed to the young guys and girls that went to the matches. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, or fortunately for Harley, he got to be champion probably a lot longer than he needed to be. So. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, I read Harley Race's book and I mean, taking a step back, when they put the title back him, on him in 1983, it was like the worst news I'd ever gotten. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm, all, I'm still sick of this guy. 
right? And he's NWA champion again. And that was a significant change because it was almost like they were taking the NWA championship and using it to the benefit of one promotion and one promotion only. And that's the mid Atlantic. So they could have Starcade 83 with flair winning it back. And, you know, to me, that's kind of very backward in, in, in my opinion, but Harley race in his book was like really bitter about losing the title at Starcade 83 for the last time. And that, you know, he felt like the NWA basically wiped their ass with him. And, I, I I couldn't disagree more. I thought Harley, you know, he had, I mean, he had the build for four years and then he had it again for another six months. What else can you ask for? Yeah. Well, I, I guess I could, uh, you know, he's a, he's a man with great pride and he should have that pride because what he did in the ring, I mean, I don't know you couldn't count on one hand, the guys that could work those kind of matches that he could, that had the durability that he had, the toughness that he had. And I've only talked to Dave Meltzer on the phone, maybe like two or three times my whole life. But I talked to him briefly when Harley did that uh, bump against Hogan in Memphis and his insides got all torn apart. You know, that terrible bump he took on in uh, Saturday night main event. And, and And Dave Meltzer, I could tell he was like touched. I mean, just his voice was like, his voice cracked, I think, just saying almost the fact that, you know, Harley came close to death from that bump. And and the fact that he stitched himself up and, you know, made a comeback in the WWF. And then he, of course, went to WCW, became the manager for Vader. But uh, the fact that he even, you know, he even wrestled Flair a few times on house shows for WCW in the early 90s. I mean, this guy just lived and breathed wrestling. And then, as you well know, went on to have his own school and, and had lots of good uh, graduates that became good pros, but man, what a, what a guy. I mean, just what a career, what a, what a, uh, a tr- you know, great wrestler you can be proud of. I cannot emphasize enough that this, I was not bashing Harley race at all. When I was saying that stuff. And no, I know, I, remember, I know that. Yeah. I mean, I remember hearing about the bump in Nashville before it aired on Saturday night's main event. I heard about, you know, the injury and how bad it was. And then I saw it. And I was like, what is he thinking? That was like a suicide <laughs> bump. The guy, yeah, you know, he's and, and like he, 40... he was just so tough. I mean, he continued with that match. He just kept working and working. Yes. But um, I mean, he was he was phenomenal. I mean, and plus he had that car wreck when he was like 16, 17, and, you know, that almost knocked him out of wrestling. I, I always crack up when Gordon Soley would mention that car wreck and go, but Harley Race has managed to wrestle more than half his adult life um, in the ring, like more than half his adult <laughs> life. Well, Gordon, take algebra. Jeez. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I think you owe me a question now. Okay. In your opinion, what was the Dan Farron asked, what was the strongest roster in 1986? Well, I, I actually looked at a few different promotions. Um, it could be Florida. I mean, um, I've got the list in front of me here. I mean, it's like a who's who of wrestling. Uh, Billy Robinson, which uh, our good friend uh, here in Florida would like, uh, Barry Rose. Uh, a young Ricky Steamboat was here. Young Paul Orndorff was here. Ray Stevens, Joe LaDuke, Dusty. I mean, it, it just goes on and on and on. Uh, the Carolinas had an incredible group, too. Uh, Rick Flair was there. Wahoo McDaniel. 
Malenko, the Andersons, Paul Jones, Mulligan, a young Dino Bravo, Tim Woods, Tony Atlas, Johnny Weaver. I mean, the WWF had, you know, Bruno, arguably the most popular wrestler. Uh, you had Andre, you had Bobo Brazil, you had Superstar, you had Ivan Koloff, uh, Hanson and Brody as youngsters and uh, big threats, and of course, Ken Patera. So, <laughs> I mean, you could really just, uh, you know, toss a dime up in the air and do a pick. But um, I guess I'd probably go with Mid-Atlantic just because they had a huge uh, diverse group and they were putting on a great, great cards, high quality cards at the time. I'm actually going with Mid-Atlantic by a pretty wide margin because even as a kid buying the magazines, I saw wrestler after wrestler in Mid-Atlantic that I considered major superstars at the time. Just like, like by me looking at them in a magazine made me say, oh, wow, this guy's a star. We're talking, you know, guys who were there almost the entire year, like Wahoo McDaniel, Paul Jones, Ric Flair, Greg Valentine, uh, Blackjack Mulligan. Uh, Steamboat hadn't, no, he hadn't gotten his first push yet. Uh, Tim Woods is Mr. Wrestling. Like most right. of those guys, I, I looked at and said, okay, I, I don't be surprised if I pick up the ma- a magazine at the drugstore, open it up and see that, you know, a whole bunch of that roster uh, has become NWA champion. So WWF, I think, is a close second. Like you said, they had, you know, the, the I mean, Ernie Ladd, superstar Billy Graham, Ivan Koloff, Ken Patera, you know, some no, a few of them are no-brainer Hall of Famers. And then, like you said, a young Hanson, a young Brody, Nikolai Volkov was impressive. And then, you know, you get the mm-hmm. guys who... I mean, Ivan Putski, Bobo Brazil, those guys were still over. Strongbow came back. You know, guys who maybe wouldn't have been stars other places, but that doesn't matter. They were stars here. Oh yeah, yeah, and and I would I would also include uh, Florida in the conversation. Florida had an amazing group of uh, faces and heels with Dusty, uh, the head of it, of course, and. Uh, I, I actually talked to George Shire briefly before the podcast just to get his take on 1976 and the AWA. He said it was a unique year over there just because uh, Bockwinkle had won the NW, sorry, the AWA title off of Vern in late 75. So uh, kind of like Billy Graham and WWWF in 77, for the first time, all the babyface challengers were having a heel champion to go against. So in the AWA, you had Bachwinkle defend against uh, people like Larry Hennig and the Crusher and Peter Maivia and a lot of the, the local guys that were over in the AWA. So I wouldn't say the AWA was in the discussion of best talent, but uh, definitely an exciting year with uh, Bachwinkle in charge. And also representing the Heenan family was the Duncan and Lanza had a long-term um, hold on the tag team titles there. And of course the young high flyers were their top challengers. That is a really good point that the AWA in 1976 almost got turned upside down because it, you know, it was a promotion we were used to seeing the heels chasing after Vern. Now we've got the complete mirror image of the baby faces chasing Nick Bockwinkle. Yeah, George felt as a longtime fan that he felt that this was quite refreshing. And he said that the there wasn't really any major turnover in the roster that year. But uh, just the fact that they could kind of change their program completely made it exciting. So uh, those were those are fun times to hear about. 
Definitely. Yeah, that, that was a really good point. Before I throw out my next question, Steve, I just looked at the clock and I was like, you've got to be kidding me. This 45 minutes has flown by. I've only got 15 minutes left. I'm going to make the best of it. Doggone it. All right. Danny <laughs> Bentley asks, had the plane crash not happened in mid-Atlantic in 1975 and Johnny Valentine was still the main heel, do you think Ric Flair would have risen as fast as he did? I, I personally think on that that he um, it did help speed him along a little bit, but I think that that promotion was was kind of advanced and that they did like to push the younger guys. And I know uh, after the terrible accident that occurred, uh, Billy Graham even was brought in temporarily to the Carolinas, and he worked as a top uh, heel briefly. And of course, uh, Flair they realized they had something with him, and he caught on and. Uh, same with Greg Valentine, became a big Mid-Atlantic star shortly thereafter. And yeah, I, I think had had the accident not occurred, I think uh, Johnny Valentine would have hopefully been on top for a few more years. And, uh, and that was a huge loss to wrestling since he was so phenomenal. But uh, yeah, the young guys would have got their push. They would have had their day in the sun, maybe just a little bit later down the road. All right, a couple of things I wanted to talk about. I mean, this is wrestling in 1975. You've got Tim Woods, good guy, and Johnny Valentine, bad guy, riding in the same plane. (laughs) And in order to protect the business, Tim Woods, who has just been in a plane crash, did not, and he had broken ribs. I've had bruised ribs. Bruised ribs are brutal. I can only imagine what, what broken ribs must be like trying to travel and wrestle. I mean, you know, it, it's incredible, but that's what they did to protect the business. Um, I mean, that's number one, but number two, again, I want to emphasize he was just in a plane crash for God's sake. If I was in a plane crash, I wasn't hurt. I'd be so flipped out. I wouldn't be able to wrestle for a few weeks. But secondly, I was told by someone who knew that they were they were on the cusp of turning Johnny Valentine babyface. And I he did say on the cusp. And I I wish I had more questions because okay, well, where does that leave Greg Valentine? Because in the seventies they didn't do brother versus brother feuds, at least as far as I know. And number two, I mean, Johnny Valentine was feuding with Ric Flair, was teaming with Ric Flair, excuse me. So to answer Danny's question, Ric Flair may have assented even faster if he's feuding with Johnny Valentine on top. Johnny was already older, but he, you know, the fans still bought him. And like I said, they supposedly, you know, that crash really turned history because Johnny Valentine was going to become the number one guy in that territory as a, as a baby face. Wow. That, that's some good insight. I, I didn't know that. And, uh, and what you're saying makes a lot of sense. Had Flair gotten the rub from Valentine, it would have uh, made his legend even bigger than it is now. Yeah, and, you know, obviously Ric Flair didn't need a lot of help. He was over like crazy in 1976 and would continue to be over like crazy for years to come. Getting a little bit off the 76 topic, Steve, I was watching some old World Championship Wrestling episodes from 1985, and Ric Flair gets out there, and he says, I love doing this so much. I love being Ric Flair. I might do this for another 20 years. (laughs) He did it for a lot longer than that. It was just a (laughs) Great quote. Well, he he is a piece of work, but uh, I've got another question for you. And this one is from um, Anthony Osiello. 
what was the wrestler in 1976 that you thought was destined for bigger things and fell short? All right, my my answer is is absolutely crazy. Okay, it, I now know how the WWF tag team scene worked. Okay, the mm-hmm. I, I didn't know in 1976. I thought the wrestlers that were destined for bigger things were the executioners. I mean, here you have these two giant guys who Lou Albano has put together as a tag team, and it looks like you know they have other worlds to conquer once they left the WWF. And I could not understand for the life of me, like what happened to them once they left the WWF, because, you know, again, I, I didn't know how the tag team scene worked or how the wrestling business worked. Sure. Uh, mm-hmm. that the WWF would just create the Yukon lumberjacks, the, the moon dogs, the executioners, etc. So yeah, I, for, I want to say years, but for at least a year, I would pick up the magazines waiting for the executioners to show up in another territory, not realizing that Killer Kowalski, you know, went home to Salem, Mass, or whatever, and executioner number two is now Big John Stud. <laughs> and and I, I don't know, if, I don't even know if you would know this, but I, I did from my research. I was surprised to learn that Killer, Killer Kowalski actually spent some time in Florida in 1976. I think it was before the executioner gimmick started, but it just shows you these guys are all over the place. It really does. I had no idea he was still wrestling at all. I figured he hung it up in 1974 and came back a couple of years later to give one of his students a break. Now, uh, um, I'll try to answer that question, too. Uh, there was one wrestler I remember reading about in the magazines back in the day. Um, there was a wrestler in the AWA. His wrestler, his brother wrestled, too, Billy Francis. And the wrestler I'm thinking about was Russ Francis, who uh, ended up being an NFL tight end all-pro uh, with the San Francisco 49ers, uh, Mr. Kippelman. And the New England uh, Patriots. And the New England Patriots, too. So uh, Russ, Russ, to me, he had it all. I mean, he was uh, you know, maybe uh, in the NFL, he was a big guy. But in wrestling, I don't think he was really that big. But he had a great look, very athletic. And, uh, yeah, I could see w- why he never really became a big wrestling star. I mean, he came back for the WrestleMania two Battle Royal. But, uh, you know, he was really a great NFL player. And I guess that's why he never really – even though his dad was the big promoter in Hawaii, he just never really took it to the next level. That's an excellent answer because obviously Russ Francis, you know, his football career wasn't going to last forever. So why not become a pro wrestler when that is all done? He was a big guy. He was a really good looking guy. So I, I like that answer. I didn't even think of that. I think, I think it was 1976. The Patriots played the Dallas Cowboys, and the Cowboys had this linebacker, Hollywood Henderson, who was yeah, yeah. A, a total 70s guy and was running his mouth about what he was going to do to the Patriots. And our tight end, uh, Russ Francis, who could block, just totally shut him down. God bless, Russ. Thank you for that. <laughs> Man, your, mem- your memories are, are right on, t- on target today. Unbelievable. I, it was 76 or 77, 78, right around then, but I remember the game, and, and Russ Francis just turfed this guy. Wow. All right. I believe it's my question. I'm, I'm glad we're, we're not going to get to all of them, but I'm glad we're getting to a lot of them. This is good. Mm-hmm. 
let me see. Oh, this is I'm going to embarrass myself again. Carl Wardlaw asked, what was the thing about wrestling that grabbed your attention that first time and kept you watching? Uh, Steve, what was the one thing for you? Well, I had seen wrestling before 1976. Very briefly, I'd seen the IWA, and I, I liked it as just kind of a goof. I mean, Monty Igor would, you know, have these big uh, cinder blocks on his shoulders, and his manager, uh, Ivan Kolmakov, would, you know, hit him with a sledgehammer, and he would, you know, withstand all the pain and whatever. Uh, but it was just kind of corny. It was kind of ridiculous. But that first night, I was watching WOR Channel 9 at midnight. Uh, it was uh, uh, Superstar and the Grand Wizard and Lou Albano and Ivan Koloff doing this promo with Vince for Madison Square Garden. And each one of these guys was riffing and, and just on the top of their game. And they were drawing you in. And then when they were all done, Vince has Bruno come out. And Bruno, I mean, he could have sold insurance. I mean, you really believe what this guy was talking about. He was just so honest and so sincere about you know him def- def- helping to uh, defend the honor of his fallen cousin, Tony Parisi. And and I was just hooked from that moment on. I mean, uh, the matches were fun and, and, and everything else, but just these larger-than-life characters, uh, the ultra-good guy Bruno and the ultra-bad guy Superstar and Koloff and Albano and the Wizard and, of course, Blassie, too. I was hooked. I, I was just hooked for life. You know, it's funny. We're we're very similar because I the first time I saw wrestling was the last night I lived in Jackson Heights, New York. Uh, <laughs> uh, my parents went out and, you know, one last night in New York and uh, one of my cousins was babysitting me and he's like, OK, do you want to go to bed? Or do you want to watch wrestling? Well, what 10 year old is going to say I want to go to bed, <laughs> right? And I saw IWA wrestling. It was the first time I'd ever seen it. And. They had Mighty Igor wrestling and Bruno Bro Bulldog Brower, a little different than Bruno San Martino, comes out and starts beating up Mighty Igor with a chair. And it blew my mind. It absolutely <laughs> blew my mind. Can you imagine uh, Ken Norton and Muhammad Ali having a boxing match and someone, another boxer comes in and starts wailing on Ali with the chair? Can you no, imagine I can't someone- believe that. You know, coming out and hitting Tom Seaver with a chair as he's you know revving up the pitch. So you know, what a completely crazy different world. And then the next day, the movers are at my house, and I start talking about this. Like, like, hey, are you going to see this match? And they're like, yeah, we're going in. And I'm talking. Ten-year-old me is talking wrestling with the movers, and my parents are like, what the (laughs) hell is going on here? Right? Your your babysitter got fired immediately. (laughs) <laughs> my cousin got let go from the family <laughs> <laughs> but that wasn't enough to hook me in right i you know uh-huh. just this thing i saw and okay wow and then i it was on channel 56 at 11 in the morning and i was a kid going through the channels if it was on i would watch it and sometimes i'd turn it off turn it on i liked it but you know i liked it as much as the cartoons and everything else and one day my favorite uh, wrestler billy white wolf is taking a beat down uh from rocky tamayo and crusher blackwell <laughs> they knocked jose gonzalez out of the ring and then the two guys were beating up the one guy and chief j strongbow who had been on hiatus from the wwf comes running out and the fans go crazy and i mean crazy like next level something i've never seen before and that was the moment i was hooked 
Wow. Here I am 46 years later, whatever it is, 47 years later, talking about on this thing called a podcast. Yeah, and you and I can go apply for Medicare in a few years, so high five. <laughs> Lord willing. All right. Willing. So have to, all right. I, I think we've got time for one or two more questions. Okay. I, I found a good one for us here. Um, Mark no. Matuso asks, who was the wrestling MVP in 1976? I think – the wrestling MVP had to be well. There's there's two possibilities. I would go. I'll go one and one A. My one A is Dusty Rhodes. Dusty Rhodes was on fire. He was wrestling not just in Florida, but he was wrestling in Atlanta. He was wrestling in the Carolinas. I know he took a booking for, uh, for Fritz von Erich or two. The next year, he'd be up in the WWF making special appearances and wrestling superstar Billy Graham for the title. What am I talking about? Dusty is is 1A. He just misses. My number one, I think it's going to be your number one. The fact that Bruno Sammartino gets injured, and we have people out wondering whether or not the WWF was going to go out of business, speaks wonders for his value. The fact that they, Vince Sr. gave him a deal that was just a, a phenomenal compared to what anyone else was making shows you how, how valuable Bruno Sammartino is. So, I mean, you know, both in terms of, of real value and perceived value, like star power, being on the cover of magazines, I got to go with Bruno. Well, those are two great answers. Um I, I will tell you that uh, one of my favorite wrestling historians is Steve Yohe. And a few years ago, he wrote this long article uh, talking about, well, if the Wrestling Observer had been around back, say, in the 70s, like who would the fans have written or voted for as the wrestler of the year? And this is what he had to say about 1976. And I'll keep this brief. He just says, this was the year of Antonio Inoki versus Muhammad Ali and San Martino's broken neck. If Inoki had been able to pull it off, he would have won, but he didn't. San Martino injured his neck in a match with young Stan Hansen and sucked it up to return and draw 40000 for a rematch on the undercard of the closed circuit showing of Ali Inoki. Nowhere in the U.S. did the Ali match draw beans, so I feel the Shea Stadium can be credited to Bruno. He also drew big in matches with Billy Graham, Ernie Ladd, and Bruiser Brody. Terry Funk, Andre, Dusty Rose, Jumbo Saruta, Mil Mascaris, and Terry Funk would have some votes. Mid-Atlantic was having great matches with stars like Ric Flair and Wahoo McDaniel. So uh, with the Steve Yo, he is my witness. I'll vote for Bruno too. Okay. And you know, that makes sense. I, I've seen Steve Ar- Steve's articles. I haven't seen them in a while, but I need to, to revisit those because I do remember them and I'm, I do remember enjoying them. Well, let me see. Last question. I, I'll tell you what, let me go with Vincent Waller. Was 1976 Andre the best version of Andre? If not, where do you think, where do you rank his 1976 iteration? I'll tell you what, Steve. I, I want. Let me, please allow me to go first on this one. I will let please. you get in there. I mean, talk about like me being just so pedantic thinking about this question. <laughs> um, I think 1976 Andre was probably the second best Andre. It was after he started to learn how to work and before he started to put on weight, which was noticeable as time went on, even before the broken leg with the, 
well, with Killer Khan or whatever happened. Um, mm-hmm. 75, I thought, was the best Andre the Giant because he came to, he came to the WWF in 74. But they finally figured out, well, I want to say figured out how to use him. They kept him in the undercard, comedy matches, whatever else in 74. And then 75, you've got Andre versus Ernie Ladd starting off. That went into 876 as well. But you find they finally found the right opponent for Andre. You've got the Battle of the Giants with he and Ernie Ladd. So that's why I'm going with 1975. But Vincent, 1976 is my number two. What do you think, Steve? I think, um, you know, aesthetically, I think Andre in 76 was maybe at his very best or his peak. But as, as a worker, I mean, just from watching his matches, when he did put on the extra weight and he wrestled Stan Hansen in 81 and he had the big series with Killer Khan in 81, it, the matches, I think, were more compelling then. It seemed like in 76, uh, I know he wrestled Bachwinkle and he, you know, had some real matches, with, you know, outside of the WWF. Uh, but it seemed like a lot of the time his matches in were, the ones we saw were like mismatches. And by the time the eighties came, he was actually having good competitive matches with Hogan and uh, killer Khan and the guys we talked about Stan Hansen in Japan. So even though aesthetically and, and health wise, he was a lot better in 76. I think his matches in 81 were probably even better than, than what he did in the seventies. Okay, I can see that. I mean, the Killer Khan matches, even after the broken leg, you're right, were really good. He had a really good match with Stan Hansen in Japan. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think that was 83. Um, Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you're you're making a really good point here. And But like I said, aesthetically, I thought in in 81, Andre, I mean, he was still Andre the Giant, but, uh, you know, for health reasons and, and other reasons, you know, he started to get old quickly. And by 81... If, you know, you, you were there, Steve. I mean, they Vince McMahon comes out and he announces what he's what, what you're going to see on TV. And when he said, "And this week, Andre the Giant," I'd be like, "Oh God, again with that same old match." Always <laughs> had. I probably felt that way. I probably felt that way about it too, honestly. All right, I can see that. All right, Steve. We now we have spoken for an hour about pro wrestling. If you're not into this next subject, I thank you for listening to the wrestling part, and I can't wait to see you next week. But Steve and I are going to have a little extra innings session where we talk about our favorite baseball players of the 1970s. Steve, I mean, you came up with this, and I wanted to roll with it. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you for taking me up on this. Um, I, I just wanted to mention some players that just, uh, n- n- this is, is, is in no way saying, hey, these guys are the best players, but these were players I just remember fondly and have sweet memories of. Um, first, I'm going to just give you some honorable mentions that didn't really make, uh, we both made like a top five, I think. But my honorable mentions would include Dave Kingman for his just unbelievable uh, home run ability. Uh, I, I got Mon- to see him. I got to see Dave Kingman hit a home run at his debut at Shea Stadium, opening day 75, 74 or 75, when, whenever Kingman showed up at the Mets. I think it was 75. Now, now tell me about that. Like, what did you think seeing this guy? He was huge. He was huge. They got him for nothing. The Mets needed a first baseman. I mean, the guy on paper could play third, left, right, and first, but he could only really play first. And I was, <laughs> I was excited for him to be a Met. You know, we obviously were adding a, a quality player and 
you know, and, and then opening day, I got to see him jack a moonshot. So that was that was pretty exciting. I'm pretty sure that was 75. Yeah, it's funny, you know, we, we've been watching baseball all these years and you know, we've seen everything happen. We've seen Barry Bonds. We've seen uh, Judge this year. We've we've seen really everything. But I mean, I still think about Dave Kamen when I think about home runs. I mean, he just had this magic about him. He was just such a powerhouse. I mean, I, I don't have it in front of me, but I think he hit 36 home runs that year. At Shea, well, with Shea Stadium being his home stadium, it's like so hard to hit home runs at Shea. It was like the ultimate pitcher's park. That's thunder in the background, by the way, people. <laughs> yeah, it was just a swirling uh, wind of, of hot dog wrappers and garbage there. But uh, I remember yes! him playing in the, in the 80s for the Cubs, and he would just like hit these. It was those games with the Phillies. It was like 18 to 11, and uh, Kingman has hit three home runs today, folks. You know, it was just unbelievable. Yeah, he couldn't do anything but hit home runs, but he was good enough doing that where he was a, a valuable piece. I think his last year was 87 and he was still having a good year with the Oakland A's. Like you're like, okay, why didn't this guy come back? But he didn't. Yeah. Yeah. I think him and Reggie were DHs uh, right around that time. Uh, um, now another player I want to mention to you, and this is going to make you laugh because uh, for those that don't know, John and I are rival fans here. He's a Red Sox fan. I'm a Yankee fan. And this guy uh, was one of my all time favorites and he came from the Red Sox and probably one of the all time worst trades for the Red Sox. Uh, we shipped him Danny Cater and the Yankees got Sparky Lyle and Sparky Lyle was kind of like the Mariano Rivera of the seventies, but instead of the cutter, it was the slider. I I mean, it, that trade took place, what, 73 and it is still, it still gets mentioned that, you know, the Red Sox got fleeced by the Yankees. Oh yeah. And, and uh, for fans who have read the uh, Peter Gallenbach uh, book, uh, the Bronx zoo, uh, Sparky became famous for sitting on cakes. And that, that's something to be proud of. Uh, I've got cake <laughs> stories, but anyway, <laughs> I don't have honorable mentions. I've got five guys. So do, do who else do you have for honor, honorable mention? Um, the last, well, just a couple, uh, Willie Montanez who played for a space for the Mets a lot. He always liked to uh, grab his junk before uh, getting in the hitter's position. That just, that was very bizarre to me as a young uh, teenager watching the games. Yeah, I could see that. <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> this is going to sound weird to everyone. I recently like took a look at Willie Montanez's stats at, at baseball reference. And I was like, yeah, okay. Am I missing something? This guy kind of sucks. He, he no power, not a lot of walks, not a great batting average. Like what's he doing in, in the lineup? He, I, the way I remember him, he was more like a, a guy who would hit maybe around 300, but like you say, very little, little power. Not a, not a guy that should probably be at first base, but I guess he couldn't play anywhere else. Yeah. I mean, like I remembered him fondly. I was like, oh yeah, Willie Montanez, like 20 home runs a year, 90 RBIs, 290. Like, no, none of that was there. I remember when the <laughs> Mets traded for him though, and we lost John Matlack in the trade. And that was a real kick in the stomach. Oh, yeah, Matlack was a good pitcher. Uh, now, my fi my final honorable mention, and he, he, maybe he should be number one on my regular list, but uh, Rod Carew, I mean, uh, you know, baseball people write poems about it, and they sing sonnets, and Rod Carew, just watching him swing a bat was like ar artistry, pure artistry. I mean, he, it was just magic watching him swing a bat. 
Rod Carew might be one of he might be the most underrated player of the seventies, uh, one of the most underrated players of all time, which is kind of weird because he was a major star in baseball. If you were even a little bit of a baseball fan, you knew who Rod Carew was, and for whatever reason, probably because he played the bulk of his uh, his prime with the Twins, just doesn't get talked about a lot. But Rod Carew was one of the elite. Was he player of the 70s? No. Uh, my favorite player, who we will get to, was player of the 70s. But he might be in the top five. He was that good. Give me Rod Carew over Reggie Jackson any day. And I, right. I thought Reggie Jackson was a great player. Oh, yeah, Reggie was a great uh, money player for sure. Okay, now I'm going to my official top five. And uh, and, and, I'm, and how I picked these, um, I'll just kind of mention why I picked them. Um, number five, you know, as a lifelong Yankee fan, I really never really followed the San Diego Padres, but it kind of caught my uh, uh, attention or had uh, some whimsy about this. The year that Randy Jones all of a sudden became the Cy Young out of like left field. You know, this guy with the, the poofy hair, and the and the uh, weird uh, San Diego Padres jersey turned out he was like one of the best uh, junk ball pitchers of all time and a lefty, but uh, for a very brief time, from uh, I think it was seventy six or seventy seven, he won a Cy Young and he was considered one of the top pitchers in baseball just as a junk ball pitcher. Okay, Randy Jones, I want to say it was 76. I think he had 17 or 18 wins at the All-Star break. <laughs> and which is insane. Was. Right? It is insane. Which is insane. And, and, and with a mediocre team, too. With, with, with not, e- I don't even think they were mediocre. I thought they were, San Diego was pretty bad by, at that point. They and, probably had Dave Winfield and little else. Uh, was Yeah, Winfield had arrived, yes. And... You know, there were there were people asking at the All Star break, "Hey, are we going to see a pitcher win thirty games?" Which is just, you know, I mean, in my lifetime, I think I've seen one guy win twenty five games. Denny McLean won thirty one games, but that was in the sixties, and things were different. So. And of course, of course, he didn't win 30 games. And of course, the Mets traded a young player for a washed up junk ball. Randy Jones gave him a nice contract because that's how the Mets did their business. But yeah, I remember that summer of Randy Jones, man. Yeah, it was it was something to to remember, especially for that franchise, which really had uh, very few bright uh, times over there. Now, no, my uh, what's your number five? Well, my number five before I want to say this about the Padres when Catfish Hunter was granted free agency, which was incredible. No one got free agency in any sport back then, right? <laughs> That's right. The Padres were willing to 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 make him. A far better financial offer than the Yankees did. And really? Hunter, oh, yeah. They were willing to give him more money in more years. And Catfish is like, I don't want to get involved in the San Diego Padres losing 90 games a year junk. I'll go play for the Yankees. <laughs> but anyway. Um, but yeah, Ray Kroc owns McDonald's. And he was, you know, he was ready to give Catfish whatever he wanted to get the Padres off the ground. And Catfish said, no way. Uh, my number five play, favorite player of the 70s is someone I, I'll bet you've heard of, but very few others out there have. I loved this guy. He was a tiny little second baseman for the New York Mets. Uh, his name was Felix Mion. He had so little upper body strength that he choked <laughs> up on the bat, for God's sake. 
But he could the ball all over the field. He was a, a great um not great, but he was a really good defensive second baseman. And, you know, I just, as a Mets fan, I absolutely love the guy. I believe he is from the same hometown in Puerto Rico as our friend, uh, Jesus Salas Rodriguez. And like I said, you know, he, Mion wasn't a great player, but uh, he was a solid regular when he was with the Mets. I just love the guy. No, he, he definitely was a, a very memorable part of those teams. And, you know, it's funny about the, the, the heritage of the Mets. And I think uh, Brian Last had mentioned this recently on one of the great Cornette shows. Uh, you know, the new owner of the Mets is finally honoring the, the history and lineage of the Mets. And uh, I remember they used to have, uh, like, where the Yankees were famous for having a bat day and, and famous for having old-timers day. The Mets always liked to have, do you remember Banner Day? Oh, of course. And, and they'd have signs that would be like, uh, bring back George Theodore. <laughs> These big signs. It was just funny. I mean, uh, you know, long forgotten utility players, the fans wanted to bring him back. Uh, but th- those were the days of the Mets. And, and I actually went to the Shea Stadium in the mid-70s for some of those games. And I remember going to their – they had this, like, really cool restaurant where you can go and get, like you, – you'd think I'd be eating a hot dog at the baseball game. But I got, like, a whole, like, Thanksgiving dinner in the Mets cafeteria, like this big, you know, hot turkey with the stuffing. You know, it was, it was incredibly good. I was at – now, I, I talked about living like a mile from Jack Witchie's. I also lived like a mile from Shea Stadium, really? and which was really cool because in 1975, my last year in New York, the Yankees were playing 81 games at Shea Stadium too. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. So I didn't realize how close I was. MapQuest is the thing I was looking for. I looked it up on Map, MapQuest, another 1.3 miles, and you just get on the train and go to Shea Stadium. It had its own uh, train stop, and, you know, boom, you're there, like, you know, right away. I was at the game where George Theodore – his career ended. Really? <laughs> I'm, I'm totally serious. He got into this high-speed collision with Don Hahn. Neither <laughs> one saw the other guy come, and they were going full, you know, full speed. And George Theodore, he broke one hip and dislocated the other hip, right? So that wow. was it for George Theodore. And for years, I was like, oh, man, it was so sad. We had this rising star, George Theodore, and look what happened. That's how the Mets made it sound like. And then finally, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to know what's going on and look it up. I see the guy's like 27, and he can't play. It's like, okay, I, the Mets lost this rising star. But, yeah, wow. I was there live, and I'm very young. I'm like, why is this taking so long? Get him out of here. <laughs> I didn't realize <laughs> how serious these injuries were. Don Hahn, who was never that good, but he he managed to play baseball again. But yeah, that was the end of George Theodore. And I got to see it live. No, I, I can uh, I can proudly say I remember using Don Hahn as a Stratomat card uh, back in the mid-70s. Oh, you didn't have a very good team. But anyway. <laughs> All right. My number four. Uh, now, this is a guy. He's probably most famous for ending the Pete Rose hit streak, but... Um, Gene Garber, probably best known as a reliever for the Atlanta Braves, 
you know, back in the day, for people that might know me a little bit, um, I'm one of the uh, all, you know one of the all time great wiffle ball players of my region where I'm from. And oh, I did not know that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Actually, me and uh, some buddies of mine were were on a team that actually won um, a major league boss baseball had sponsored this thing called yard ball in the year. I think it was either 99 or 2000. And we were like in our forties or even then or we're in thirties or forties and our team won. I, I didn't play in any of the games, but I was there kind of an honorary, uh, probably like a Bobby Heenan type, I guess, but uh, our team won. Uh, but, but Gene Garber was always uh, like an inspiration for me as a pitcher in wiffle ball. I did that, that real kind of like that uh, weird motion, that under, underhanded turn your back to the batter and spin around and release the ball. And, uh, you know, especially now that I'm turning into an old geezer, you know, that, that windup is very comfortable. You don't have to throw it over the top. It's really a great, great windup he had. I remember Gene Garber with the Braves and the Phillies. I remember him getting traded straight up for a guy named Dick Ruthven. He was, was a good like, pitcher. Was he? I, I don't remember. I remember him not being good, but I could be wrong. But yeah. I was like, why, you know, I remember at the time, and maybe I was wrong, like, Garber's good. Ruthven's not. Why are we making this trade? Not we, because it's the Braves <laughs> and the Phillies. I don't care. But that's, yeah. that's what I remember about Garber. He was around for a while, though. I remember him in the mid-'80s. Oh yeah, I, I guess just that that weird windup he had was so effective and very deceiving. Since you know, uh, it's probably hard for Bears to pick up his release point, but uh, he he was just had a very good career. All right, my number four through number one are nowhere near as abstract as my number five. As a kid, I loved Johnny Bench. I mean, anytime the Reds came on, I got to see someone who was one of the best players in baseball. He was a gold glove catcher who would hit like 35, 40 home runs in the, uh, per year in veteran, uh, not veteran stadium, uh, whatever riverfront stadium where the mm-hmm. Reds played, sure. you know, pitchers park in a pitchers league, just. They shared the stadium with the Cincinnati Bengals, which means there's foul ground all over the place. And this guy, I mean, what a player he was. And plus, when I was a kid, I had this uh, electronic game called Johnny Bench Baseball. So he gets the nod as number four. No questions asked. Hall of Famer, easily one of the five best catchers of all time. Yeah, he, he and he's a class act. He's always represented baseball so well. And and now, if you ever watch, uh, you know, Cooperstown, when they have all the the old timers there, of the uh, the you know, he's he's now one of the older ones, and the, you know, he's such a great spokesman for the game. Now, my number three was a guy that I never really really got to see him play hardly at all but i think just the legend of this guy he just stands out to me as kind of an iconic player richie or dick allen uh, best known for the phillies and also uh, for the chicago white Sox. now we're Uh, talking favorite players here right well, yeah, but just players that I admire or okay. like. Yeah, and I'm not saying best player. Definitely not not a best player. But for for a short time, probably around 1972 with the White Sox, he was one of the top offensive players in baseball. But I, I liked his attitude. He was a very edgy guy. He wasn't going to take shit from anybody. And you don't see players like that anymore. You don't see a guy who just like no nonsense, ready to kick your ass. He, he was just a very uh, a very well respected ball player in that regard. I mean, from what I understand about Dick Allen, by the time he was getting older, like in his 30s, he had turned into – he was like an Albert Bell type as far as like <laughs> no one likes him, except 
Albert Bell, I never heard that he was a bad teammate. Dick Allen, I there's so many stories about him just being a bad teammate and mm-hmm. turning the younger players into also bad teammates. Supposedly, Carlos May would have been a way big, better player had he never been around Dick Allen. Supposedly, I mean, supposedly Dick Allen was so toxic that even if even when he played really well, like 72, 73, 74, the guy killed it. But like he would do stuff like the day the White Sox were eliminated. Listen to this. The day the White Sox were eliminated from contention, he went okay. home. Like, what the hell is that? To, wow. to me, like, you know, if a guy did that on my team, if I was the manager or the owner, he would never come back. I would trade him for nothing. If I was one of his teammates, I'd be like, you better get this guy off this fucking team. He's not coming back. It, it, it sounds like the way you describe him. He was like, the Yankees had a player like that in the early 90s, Mel Hall, who played with the Cubs too. And he mm-hmm. was really uh, a cancer to the young guys like Bernie Williams. And when they dumped Mel Hall, that's when those young guys like Bernie Williams started to thrive and improve. So that's, that's a good call on Dick Allen. I remember Mel Hall and Joe Carter got traded straight up for Rick Sutcliffe from the Cubs. And I was like, wait a minute. These are like two elite prospects that you're giving up for like one year i think it was and mel hall the first thing i saw with him was he had uh three batting gloves in his rear pocket of his uniform and he was asked why it's like well that way when i hit a home run i can wave to everyone from every direction And I'm like, can you take baseball a little bit seriously, please? You know, you can't, you, you can't optimize your your uh, whatever running if you got these batting gloves hanging out. So this, yeah, that's this, another guy I was never crazy about. This this could have been the influence of wrestling on these guys. You never know. <laughs> could be. My number four was John. Uh, excuse me. Did you give us your number three? I, I already said Johnny Bench. I'm sorry. Uh, well, yeah, it was Gene Garber. So I'm up to uh, Dick Allen was my number three. So do you have a number three? I have a number three, George Brett. I always loved George Brett. Had Ricky Henderson. Ricky Henderson was my favorite player to not play for the Red Sox until he played for the Red Sox. So George Brett is one of my favorite players to not play for the Red Sox. Just an intense player, you know, was always there to win. Uh, No horsing around. Great third baseman. Great hitter. In a way, he is a little bit underrated because he played at the same time as Mike Schmidt. And Mike Schmidt was just better. Sorry. But, I mean, Brett, you know, no question. Asked Hall of Famer and a guy, even if he wasn't as good as he was, you want him on your team. Oh yeah, as a Yankee fan, he he crushed my dreams so many times. Oh, that's <laughs> he, right. He 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 owned Goose Gossage. I mean, Gossage might, may have been able to throw it a hundred miles an hour, but he he launched it out one hundred and ten miles an hour, and uh, he crushed us. And he he of course played a major role in the infamous Pine Tar game, which will always be fondly remembered. My, my favorite part of the Pine Tar game, which is 83, but we'll talk about it anyway, Billy mm-hmm. Martin had that one up his sleeve for at <laughs> least a year. At he least. was waiting. He was waiting for the right moment, and he found it. And for those unaware, you can only have the Pine Tar on the bat the length of home plate. If you have it any higher... You're, you're disqualified. Whatever you did just gets thrown out. Well, George Brett hits a big home run, and Billy Martin comes out and says, let's see that bat. 
and and they called George Brett out after he hit a home run. And George Brett, if you if you haven't seen it, you must see it on YouTube. Talk about a guy snapping. And and I, you know what? I'm not a Yankees fan, but they they restarted the game, and that's wrong. It was the you know. It was the rule, and George Brett was breaking the rule, and, you know, you're out, George. Sorry. I don't know why baseball ruled the way it did. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, it's funny that back in the, those days, you had managers like Billy Martin who knew all the rules and, and knew how to take advantage of them, and guys like Earl Weaver. I mean, tons of great managers back in the day. That That's one thing that is so missing in today's baseball. You, you rarely see – uh, a manager have such impact on the outcomes of the games. I am convinced the difference between the, the 70s Red Sox and the 70s Yankees was Billy Martin. He is the top reason why the Yankees won championships because he was not going to settle for anything else. He His attitude was, we're the big, bad New York Yankees, and we're coming here to kick your ass. The Red Sox are like, yeah, we're here to play baseball and collect a paycheck. <laughs> Well, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm grateful for what happened because uh, those those championships, uh, especially the '78 one, was was you know, it, well enough said. But uh, <laughs> my number two I have is is uh, Thurman Munson, who was probably probably my first favorite baseball player going back to the '70s. Just for he always left it all in the field, gave a hundred percent at all times. Um, it, tying it in with wrestling, uh, I remember being at the mall and, and seeing the first ever issue of Pro Wrestling Illustrated and buying it this little magazine kiosk at our mall. So we're driving home and I'm reading this magazine and the radio is blaring uh, AM radio or FM radio. And they announced that Thurman Munson had passed away in a plane crash. And, and man, wow, our, our lives were never the same after that. I also remember buying the first uh, issue of Pro Wrestling Illustrated. I took my bike to Plainville, Massachusetts on a really hot day, and I was happy that I had enough money to buy a Gatorade. Thurman, I remember hearing about Thurman Munson's death, and you know, I don't know what's going on. Like, what, did the Yankees plane crash? What the hell? And like, no, I found out what happened. That he's, you know, flying back and forth from New York to Akron, and you know, it wasn't supposedly he took some. He was fooling around a little bit with that airplane, and unfortunately, the result was what it was. I mean, I wish we lived in a world where that didn't happen, and we got to see the rest of Thurman Munson's career play yeah. out. Yeah, I, I really think that that as a player, I don't think he had a lot of, of left in the tank, but he he was a hell of a guy and uh, was sorely missed. Uh, did we give your number two yet? <laughs> No, not yet, but I remember when the Yankees first signed Reggie Jackson. And by the way, the guy they really wanted was Bobby Gritch, and Bobby Gritch was not going to New York. Um, <laughs> Thurman Munson gets to New York, not Thurman, Reggie Jackson, and he's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to lead this team. Thurman Munson's the captain, but I know how to straw the, I know how to stir the, the drink. Thurman can only stir it bad. <laughs> you just got here, bro. What are you doing? Yeah, they they, uh, they definitely got off on the wrong foot, and it really alienated 
the other Yankees from Reggie. I think the only Yankee that ever sat with Reggie was Fran Healy, the backup catcher. They, they formed an alliance, but uh, the rest of the Yankees, like Pinella and Nettles, they hated Reggie. But um, yeah, I, I definitely when they were in those championship games with the Royals and with the uh, Dodgers, uh, Reggie and Thurman came together for the great results they ended up with. Uh, winning goes a long way. I remember when they had the Reggie Jackson candy bar. This is yeah. how big Reggie Jackson was. And Sparky Lyle's like, yeah, it's the only candy bar you open it up and it tells you how good it is. <laughs> I was there opening day of, I think it was 78, and they were throwing those on the field at Yankee Stadium. I remember uh, that. Yeah, I was there. Wilbur Wood was pitching for the White Sox. And uh, I think, I don't think Reggie, Reggie may have hit a home run that day, but man, those bars were all over the field. It was, it was insanity. Welcome to the 70s. You know, Steve, I, I miss the days because we really don't have any baseball players like that anymore. We don't have, I mean, you know, there are great baseball players, but there are no Reggie Jacksons who are household names. There are no Pete Roses, etc. that just, you know, everyone knows who this guy is. I, I miss that. I mean, look, think about how great Mike Trout has been. And Unbelievable. It, yes. If I like stood up and read, hey, who's Mike Trout? Like ninety percent of the people aren't going to know who he is. Everyone knew who Reggie was. Oh yeah, him and Bryce Harper, and now Aaron Judge. I mean, there's there's a handful, but uh, they they should be uh, they should have their own candy bars, from my point of view. Well, that's the thing. It's like there's no demand for a Bryce Harper candy bar. There was for Reggie. It's just baseball and the world has changed. But my number two is, no questions asked, the greatest New York Met of all time, Tom Seaver, uh, put him out there every fifth day. And even the lowly Mets have an excellent chance of winning. Steve, I was lucky enough to see Tom Seaver versus Bob Gibson at Shea Stadium. So Unbelievable. Wow. Yeah. That was that was a big one. I mean, you know, I had Tom Seaver posters, I had my Mets hat. He was my guy growing up. Well, in, in tying in with our earlier theme from 1976, to see Tom Seaver host that greatest sports legends with Bruno, that yes. was that was off the chain. <laughs> It was something you were not expecting to, to see. I believe that came out in 79. Yeah. But I mean, talk about, you know, just the top guys in two separate worlds. And yeah, I remember getting the paper like the, the day the Mets traded Tom Seaver. You know, the of course, the Mets being the Mets, trade a dollar for a couple of nickels and three pennies. And it was a very, very sad day. Kingman, same day Kingman left. Oh yeah, that was a real fire sale, and uh, there is a, if you if you do a Google search, there's a picture of Pat Zachary, who I think became the de facto ace of the Mets after that trade, with uh, him and Ken Patera at Shea Stadium from the big showdown at Shea Show. <laughs> And Zachary was not wearing a shirt, and this is before baseball players got serious about their about their <laughs> muscularity. And it's it's a hilarious picture. You got scrawny little Pat Zachary and wow. Ken Patera, who looks like he's about to explode. <laughs> yeah, they they do look like father and son, but. Uh... <laughs> My my favorite uh, my favorite player to end. I'm surprised it's not Thurman Munson. I was I I thought for sure Thurman Munson would be your number one. Well, it, it ties in kind of the the my favorite player because he he really transitioned from the. Um, 
era before I was born even, uh, the Mickey Mantle era, uh, and he transitioned all the way to the beginning of the Don Mattingly era would be Bobby Mercer. Yeah, he was an all-American uh, Yankee legend and icon, and uh, he came up when Mantle was finishing up, and by the time that uh, uh, Mercer hung it up, and he was basically just a DH pinch hitter type in 82-83, uh, Mantle, I believe, replaced him, and so he's kind of a link to those two Yankee icons. Well, if to this day, it is difficult for me not to call him Bobby Moisa because that's what everyone in Jackson Heights <laughs> calls him. Bobby Moisa. Yeah. And I remember he got traded for Bobby Bonds and just everyone was devastated. Like, you know, Bobby Mercer's gone. And I, I'm a kid. I'm like, but Bobby Bonds is the better player. <laughs> yeah, he he had, yeah, he had a great 75 for the Yankees, Bobby Bonds. And I guess uh, for us diehard Yankee fans, I think as Bobby Bonds is probably best remembered because we traded him to the Angels and we got Mickey Rivers and Ed Figueroa back, which, oh, that's you know, right. as you well know, they both played a major role in the two Yankee championships that followed and three pennants. So they never would have gone anywhere without being able to trade uh, Bobby Bonds. But And, and poor, uh, I don't know, if Lou, Lou was probably four years old when this all happened, but Mercer uh, floundered in the Candlestick Park, and then he went to the Cubs and floundered there. And when he came back to the Yankees in 79, just a few months before Thurman's death, he was, you know, kind of a platoon player, but he still put up some good numbers. And surprisingly, um, Mercer is in the top 10 of the 70s for uh, uh, base hits, I guess, in the 70s. So well-regarded player. No, yeah, I you know, and, and you're right. I forgot for a minute that Bobby. Well, they flipped Mercer for Bonds, and then they flipped Mer- Bonds for Rivers and Figueroa. I mean, Figueroa was as solid a number two as you're going to see, and yeah. Mickey Rivers at least one season was definitely in the conversation for MVP. So, I mean, an absolute theft by the Yankees. Yeah, I, I've, I've been telling all my friends who've been on the, you know, jumping, uh, jumping off the Yankee parachute or, or jumping off the Yankees bandwagon that this Harrison Bader that they acquired is going to be the next Mickey Rivers, but with a lot more power. So we'll see how that goes. All right. My favorite player in the 70s, and it's not even close. No, he was not at New York Mets. No, he was not on the Boston Red Sox. But everyone intimidated, imitated his batting style, the chicken wing. Greatest defensive second baseman of all time. An offensive dynamo. Absolutely deserved more MVPs than he got. Joe Morgan. I mean, just such an exciting player. Uh, both defensively and offensively. He was someone, you know, the Reds were on TV all the time back then. And you stop yep. what you were doing when Joe, when Joe Morgan stepped up to the plate. I mean, what a greatest second baseman of all time, uh, you know, and he lasted into his forties. Like it's 1984. And I'm like, okay, Joe Morgan's still out there with the A's or the Phillies, whatever. And he was oh, still yeah. good. Oh, yeah. he, he was he was so good in in his second career on uh, the Sunday night baseball game of the week with uh, our friend from San Francisco there he was he was great in that too he was like the ultimate spokesman for baseball in, in that position and um you're you're absolutely right what a what a great hall of fame second baseman he was 
And like I say, he was my, my favorite player. He was so exciting. He was diminutive, yet he still had all kinds of power. He would hit 20 home runs a year, again, in a pitcher's park, pitcher's era, walked 100 times a year, stole like 60 bases. I mean, he was, you know, a player, if you had to build a player out of a uh, a warehouse or whatever, like this is the player you would build. Maybe a, l- a little bit bigger, but then again, if he was bigger, maybe he wouldn't have been what he was. Well, now that we've gone through our favorite players from the 70s, uh, why don't we end the show by, uh, can you make us a prediction for what do you think is going to happen in the postseason? Uh, well, and there's one other thing I want to talk about, too. The postseason, I mean, right now, uh, I mean, I, I on the 605 baseball special, I took the Chicago White Sox winning the World Series. It's not looking <laughs> real good right now. I figured that would be an easy division to win, and that's what counts. And it's been anything but. Minnesota has had a good year. Cleveland has had a really good year. I mean, ultimately, I have to go with the Dodgers. I mean, the Dodgers, not only are they like, you know, an all-star team, but they've got guys on the bench or coming off the bench, coming out of the bullpen, who are fantastic. I mean, they've, they've got to be the, the favorites right now. If I had to pick a team from the American League, I, would, I think I'd go with the Yankees over the Astros. But one thing that makes the, the major league postseason so much fun is it's unpredictable. You know, a, a team that wins 62% of its, of its games isn't going to be strongly favored over a team that wins 59%. And that's what it comes down to. It's, it's going to be interesting to see with the, you know, I wasn't a really huge fan of the extra round of, or extra teams in the playoffs, but it'll be interesting to see with the, say, if Seattle gets in and Tampa and Toronto, it'll be interesting to see if maybe an, an obscure team can somehow make it get through or, or will it just be the predictable, those teams will just do the job for these better known uh, front runners. Uh, well, we shall see. Like, there's there's really no such thing as a an upset in baseball. One last thing, Aaron Judge, no questions asked. The best and most exciting player of 2022 is going to be a free agent, and that is like right around the corner. That's like ten weeks away. Uh, follow me on Twitter because you get to see stuff like this. Some guy is like, oh, yeah, Aaron Judge should take five years, $250 million from the Yankees. And I'm like, dude, he is not taking five years. He's not getting paid through his 36th birthday. That is not the market. I'm thinking he gets bare minimum eight years. But wait, I'm thinking more like 10 because, again, that's the market. And he is going to be the hottest free agent in a long time. I think we're going to see Aaron. It only takes one team to go crazy. And I think one team is going to go like maybe nine years, 400 million on this guy. Well, well, I follow your Twitter, John, and it was so funny the other day, the guy that you were talking to about this, I don't know if you would remember the name, but the guy's name is Mike Kalinich. He's one of those wiffle ball players I grew up with. That's funny. And, yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, just go figure. I mean, in this huge world, here, here we are talking here, but um, – Oh, one you know, thing, Steve. It was it was a respectful exchange too. It wasn't like it was. Twitter, like you know, you're stupid, you're an asshole. It's like you know, okay, we just disagreed on it, but that's as far as it went. You know, yeah, you were two two smart fans and t- discussing it very intelligently. But um, you know, as a Yankee fan, I'd like to see him get what he deserves. I know. Um, 
I remember when when your guy Mookie Betts was kind of going through the same decision, and and I know you were. I think at the time you were wanting the Red Sox to kind of part ways with him just because you felt the price wasn't right and the length wasn't right. I mean, I'm hoping the Yankees can retain him because. You know, let's say the Yankees flop again this year, like they've done so much in recent years. And let's say that the Mets, uh, because the Mets owner has got more money than anybody else, and and he's a very generous guy. If if he gives you know Judge what he's looking for and outbids the Yankees, and he goes to play for the Mets, I mean we're never going to hear the end of it. <laughs> and this and plus, you know, the Mets who are already a very good team are going to have you know arguably the best player in baseball on their team. So it's going to be interesting you'll, to see what happens. You'll hear the end of it when that contract turns into an Albert Pujols contract. I mean, Judge <laughs> is a great athlete, okay? He can play center field. So even if he declines in the field, okay, shove him over to left, right? So that that's, mm-hmm. that part's good. But he's 6'7", and he's like, what, 285? Yeah. Baseball players like that tend not to age well. Right. And Someone asked Aaron Judge, hey, would you be interested in going to Boston? He's like, well, they have great fans there. Well, of course. Everyone's like, oh, my God, we're, we're getting Aaron Judge. <laughs> I would, I'd rather pass, or, or at least based on what I think he's going to get, I would rather the Red Sox pass. I, I don't want to be paying Aaron Judge you know, $45, $50 million a year when he's 39 years old. Sorry. All right. and, and I'll end this conversation with what I've been saying the entire year, and uh, and this is the this is the unpopular hot take of the year. Uh, the Yankees screwed themselves royally when they dumped Joey Gallo. <laughs> I don't care if he's batting one sixty; he should be in the friggin' lineup. He should be in left field, the catching balls. He should be in the, on the team. All right, I, I disagree with you. I think Joey Gallo needed a change of scenery. I mean, you can't have a left fielder who's an automatic out <laughs> out there. And yeah, I, I I get that the guy has some talent, but his particular skill set indicates that he's going going to be done with baseball quickly. And I, I like the guy. I hope he turns it around. But I, I don't think that he's made a mistake. But with that, Steve. Thank you for being on Stick to Wrestling. You were great with the wrestling part. You were great with the extra innings part. Hey, John, it's like old times. It's it, it just great to do it with you. Hopefully, we'll do it again in six or seven years. Years? Okay. I don't, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Stick to Wrestling is going to be around six or seven years oh, from now. No. You never know. But, yeah, thank you, Steve, for being on. I want to thank Brian Last for giving me this forum. I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all the great work he does. He really does wonderful work with the audio. And I want to thank everyone for listening. I look forward to doing this again next week. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Go Vols, beat Florida. This concludes our podcast day. Thank you.